so Pastor Brad let the cat out of the bag, right? We didn't try to pretend like this was everything we had planned. Uh, Pastor Scott is recovering, and so uh, I have been given the opportunity to uh, think with you all from uh, God's Word this morning, and uh, I'm delighted to do that. However, what I'd like to just kind of invite you into is a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff, which is, you know, we, we take the Bible very seriously here. And we believe that it should be treated with the utmost respect. And, and because of that, what I wouldn't want you thinking um, is that uh, I am going to wing it. Uh, that we just, you know, I just, you know, indiscriminately threw something together uh, in the wee hours of the night to share with you this morning. Um, we, we would not do that. And so, uh, in truth... Uh, the mess, th this this uh, text and many of these thoughts, the study for this was done a couple years ago when I shared it with our uh, secondary students at Delaware Christian School and uh, had not had the opportunity to share it with you here and I uh, thought this would be a good time to do that. So know that the study has been there and the process was as it should have been uh, rather than something else and hopefully that's an encouragement to you this morning. I will say, though, as we get started, that uh, m this might come as a surprise to you. Uh, you know, even pastors struggle with a sin nature. And uh, that's what happened to me last night when I got Pastor Scott's text. Let me explain. So for those of you who, uh, who know Pastor Scott pretty well, spent any amount of time talking with him, uh, you know, and, and maybe I, I'm assuming he's self-aware enough to know this, he uh, references regularly his... Uh, Purdue engineering education uh, and his pig farming childhood. Okay, okay, you all understand this, right? And so uh, when it when illness season hits, my family always suffers repeatedly, and this year's been no exception to that. And without fail, uh, when 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 we're experiencing all of this, you know, trauma, Pastor Scott likes to say, you know, I rarely get sick. It must be because of my pig farming childhood, just built up my immunity system. And so when I got that text last night, the, the first thought in my head was, well, those pig farming Purdue engineers must not be invincible like they think they are. <laughs> but I suppose those are the kinds of things I ought to work on suppressing. I am delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you this morning, um, and the text I'd invite you to turn to is Luke chapter 12. Um, I understand that we're going through a series in the book of Acts, but given the circumstances that you're now aware of, uh, we're going to look elsewhere. However, uh, not entirely disconnected one from the other, the book of Acts written by Luke as he sought to um, acquire the records of first-hand witnesses to the things that he wanted to document. Uh, he also uh, authored the book of Luke. And one of the things I always found interesting uh, about Luke is that, um, you know, most people, depending on how you ask the question, would say the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament because most of the books are letters of his. Most of the words of the New Testament were actually written by Luke. And so by quantity, Luke gives us more of the New Testament than any, any other. And I really find him to be a fascinating person. God chose to do that. Uh, an intellectual person, as a physician, an attention to detail. So his record is very detailed, very clear. 
And uh, it, it's just a joy anytime uh, that, that I have the opportunity to learn from him and, and how he decided through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write from his perspective. And so that's what we're encountering here in Luke chapter 12. Now, um, we're in a uh, series of passages where Jesus is having a, some different exchanges, some of which are with Pharisees, other, other audiences also. Um, and so it's, it's, it's in the midst of those conversations and discourses that we find um, today's text. And the issue, well, it speaks to many issues, um, but primarily one of um, thinking that we know a thing or two about the future when we don't. Uh, oftentimes that is actually the case. I'll give you a personal example. About 14 months ago, uh, we had just, uh, we were you know, getting up to Christmas break, uh, which is an opportunity to um, take a couple weeks off from the school year. And uh, my family, like many others, were looking forward to that. And um, prior to that, really, for months, if not years in some cases, my wife and I would regularly comment on, on certain things we had done in our home that just weren't quite right. Uh, repairs that needed to be done that, you know, you know how it works. You just never have or take the time to do, uh, you know, minor things, scuffs on the wall, uh, holes from my mistaken adventures of trying to find a stud without a stud finder. Um, you know, those kinds of things. So you, you just, you just hang something over the hole is the best way to fix it. And, uh, and so, you know, we'd like, you know, we'd like to, we would really like to hone this particular space. The one we were talking about this time was our living room. We even had, you know, we get these, for some reason, it's trendy now to hang boxes on walls. And Ikea makes a lot of money convincing us of that. And so uh, we, we buy three of these boxes and we hang them up on the wall. And don't you know, we sit down on the couch and we're like, the first and the second one are at a different space from each other than the second or third. I'm not a big fan of using a tape measure, you know. I like just eyeing it. I think that's sufficient. And then the middle one was slightly higher than the two on the sides. It could really bug you if you start looking at it long enough. These things piled up. And so Chris's break hit. We said, you know what? The time is now. We're going we're gonna to get all this stuff done. And we did. Uh, my, by the way, my wife, her, her skills at, at patching and painting a wall like nothing ever happened is second to none. Uh, so, so she always, uh, she always does that for me. If I did, it'd be worse than it was to begin with. And then we, you know, we actually used a level and tape measure to readdress the boxes on the walls. And we got all this situated out. Now the Christmas decorations are out. Everything's quite lovely. And I remember sitting on the couch thinking to myself, this is good. This is good. Symmetry, balance, as all things should be. Uh, we are going to enjoy this for years to come, I thought to myself. And about three weeks later, uh, one morning as we were getting ready for school, uh, Alicia comes to me and says, well, we're pregnant. And in that moment, I realized how foolish I had been to think that years ahead, let alone weeks or months, would be a certain way. And wouldn't you know, that as a result of that declaration, we would sell that house because uh, now space, a little bit more space would be needed. It happens to us all. 
There's good things in this world. It's perfectly fine to enjoy them. But what I had found occurring in my heart was I was taking pleasure in them in a way that I shouldn't have been. They'd become more important to me than they should have. Um, and God has a unique way of reminding us of these things. And listen, his way of reminding me of this, teaching me these lessons, uh, came in the pleasurable form of our daughter, Evelyn. Um, his reminders for others aren't so pleasant. And that's the one that we'll encounter in this passage. And it gives us the opportunity, all of us, to take an assessment, which we should anytime we encounter God's word. It's a missed opportunity if we don't carefully reflect on what we've just heard. It's a missed opportunity if we aren't finding where in our life his words ought to move us, ought to change us, ought to do many of the things that we just sung in the last song together. And so with that seriousness of mind and willingness of heart, I'd encourage you to engage this text with me this morning. Starting in uh, verse 13 of Luke chapter 12, Luke records this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brothers to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, a story, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have now nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. There's some things that we can observe about the story that Jesus has just told. We don't know the uh, ins and outs of the situation uh, that he was first approached with. Uh, none of the gospel writers give us any more details about what was going on there, but we can glean from Jesus' response that perhaps a hint of greed and covetousness were detected. And so he responds with an opportunity to teach these men using what he often did, a story. And in this story, we can uh, make three, at least three observations. The first of which is this. There is more to life than stuff. We don't have to get overly academic about it. Stuff. And we all know the particular stuff that we have problems with. It's different for every person. But there's more to life than that stuff, the stuff of this world, the stuff that if someone should choose could be taken from us, if given enough time could be decayed, stuff that if really not long passes these days becomes outdated and needs to be replaced, stuff. 
And the reality is there's more to life than that stuff. Secondly, there is a danger in misplaced priorities, always. Um, Whether you, you call them priorities or loves, there is an inherent danger in disordering them. And, and that danger manifests itself in, I think, primarily one of two ways. We call them consequences. The consequences to those disordered loves, the first kind are the immediate kind. And trust me, those are the ones you want. You want the consequences that come hot and heavy in the moment. Why? Because you might still have time to course correct and prevent yourself from experiencing the full weight of those poor choices. Immediate consequences are a blessing. Children, remember this. Then there's the other kind, and that is the delayed consequences. Those are far more severe. Because oftentimes when consequences are delayed, by the time we experience them, nothing can be done about the decisions that originated them. We just, it's all been baked into the cake, so to speak, and now we just have to eat it. And it doesn't taste very good. And you get the sense that in this story, that rich man was dealing with delayed consequences. It doesn't appear to be that this is the first instance that his greed and covetousness were making his choices. But this would be the last time that would happen. And he would find that out only when it was too late and nothing could be done about it. And then lastly... There is someone in charge, and it's not us. And I think all three of these things are relevant to any of our lives. For mine, the third one is always the hardest. Many times, if I'm to be honest, I would far prefer be the one in charge. Making the decisions about how my life ought to go, or so I think. And the truth is... Well, I convinced myself many times that life would be so much better if that were true, the reality is it would only be worse. Why? Because whether it's me making those decisions or you, none of us meet what God, only God can, perfection. So whatever his plans are are perfect, mine will never be. And it's by his grace that many times he intervenes. Otherwise, he could allow us to make those decisions and consequences to come. But by his grace, sometimes he steps in and says, no, it should not be this way. And there's a tension there. The truth is, God often ordains things in our life that we would prefer not to be experiencing. Sometimes that's in the form of loss that we don't understand, that we personally found to be untimely. Whether that be a job a relationship, a loved one. These difficulties, when they come into our life, present us with a challenge on this third point. That had we be in charge, that person would still be alive. If we were in charge, I'd have that job by now. If we were in charge, my grown child would have never left the faith. But we're not. And as a genuine follower of Christ, it is, the, it is our life's struggle to submit to this one truth. You are God and I am not. 
It's a life of learning to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think as we conform more into his image, as God chisels out of us that which ought not to be there, we slowly but surely become a person who no longer battles that idea, but praises him for it. We understand how good and right it is that he and not us are making all these decisions. These three lessons come at us from this parable, and I'd like to share with you thoughts from one of the commentaries I enjoy using. Uh, This is a Moody Bible commentary from years ago, and I still find it very useful today. That what Jesus seems to be addressing here, if nothing else, is this man's greed. And the way they define greed is the inordinate desire for more. It's not that he enjoyed the things that he had earned or was given. In fact, if that's all that we're doing, that might come very close to the idea of contentment. But it wasn't enough. It needed to be more. But the reality is, when we think about this stuff in our life that we accumulate in this temporary existence, the truth is that there is another transcendent existence that this stuff is meant to serve. And that's what the rich man missed. That transcendent experience, meaning we're eternal beings, all destined for one of two eternal places, presence with God or apart from him. And the stuff of this life is meant to serve that later reality, which is why the destiny of a person should produce choices that look drastically different from one another. See, it would make sense for a person who's destined to be separated from God for eternity to make certain choices about all of this worldly stuff look very different from the person who knows they're destined to be with the Lord forever and the choices that that's producing in their life, the relationship they have with the stuff. It should look different because the destinations are different. And for a believer, we look at this stuff and say, this is good, this is great, and we thank God for it, but it's here to serve the reality of the next life, so to speak. When you think about this man, it's interesting to note that his first step to solving this apparent problem was to consult himself, right? I will consult myself. And apparently it never occurred to him to give the excess away to others who might be in need. That could have been one option. And he admitted, I have ample goods for many years. There's enough. What else could he have been doing with it? So he consults himself, he addresses this problem, and after making precision for himself, he congratulates himself, right? Well done. And then he made plans for himself to enjoy his excess fortune for many years to come. However, God would intervene, and the lesson would be taught. Now, yes, we're talking about a fictitious person. We are not to interpret a parable or a story that Jesus teaches as as based upon real people. But this situation is as real as it gets. 
And this type of person certainly exists. And so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, how are you, how am I investing our life that we've been given? Now, this is pretty heavy. I understand that. It's a serious question to be battling with this morning. So I'm going to attempt to briefly lighten the mood and show you a visual illustration uh, that I think applies to the story that we just heard from Jesus. What I'm about to show you is uh, courtesy of Right Now Media. It's a ministry resource that we offer those who attend Delaware Bible Church. We offer you access to that. There's many good Bible studies. There's also some good video illustrations on there, like the one I'm about to show you. Why don't you take this in and see for yourselves how this might connect to our text this morning? And so that relates, right? And I think to some degree we're all a little guilty of this. And it's interesting, in, in God's words, right, he said, all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Ecclesiastes speaks to this too, incidentally, where uh, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, says, you know, honestly, we, we store and store and store, but if we're not careful, who's going to get a lot of it when we die is people we don't even know. People we don't even know. So how might we steward it with eternity in mind? Well, I, g the good thing is Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. This is so great because in verse 22, I don't know about your Bibles, but in mine, there's actually a little bit of uh, space between verses 21 and 22. And then I've got a little subheading before 22. Mine says, do not be anxious. Well, just this little bit of a school exercise here for you. These are dangerous. These man-made spaces and subheadings. Uh, if we were to start with verse 22, anyone want to tell me why the first word's a problem? Audience participation. What kind of word is the first word in verse 22? A conjunction. What does that tell us? We're in the middle of something, right? So you need to go back, right? And then you get to Jesus' next word. It says, he said to his disciples, therefore. What are you supposed to ask? What is the therefore, therefore, right? This is why I'm working on these things with our freshman Bible students right now. So we're going to connect this to what we just read because it ought to be. And the great thing about that is that Jesus doesn't leave us hanging with this terrifying story. He says, let me give you some counsel in light of all this. And so he turns to his disciples, follow along, and he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed or as beautiful like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, 
Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I think there's two big takeaways we, we get from what Jesus just shared with his disciples. The first of which is this. A flawed focus produces a featherweight faith. If the focus of our life is on the here and now, then our faith will be easily moved. In other words, the strength of our faith will oftentimes correlate to the severity or challenge of our circumstances. The harder our circumstances are, the weaker our faith becomes. The easier things are, the stronger our faith is. And, and, and if, you, if you feel that tendency in your life as I do in mine, it, it's actually God's gracious gift to us that our treasure might be in the wrong place. Whereas if, if our focus is heavenward, is, is in eternity, and our treasure is found there, then that's a treasure that's as secure as any treasure could be. It can't be taken by someone who wishes to steal it from you. It won't decay through the long progress of time or anything else. It is safe and secure, and so will be your faith. You see, you'll be the man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came and the winds blew, his house survived. As opposed to the man who built his house on the sand. And if there are times in your life and you feel like your life as a house is really representing the shakiness, the, 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 uh, the, the lack of quality or the uh, unsustainability of the house that was built on the sand, then again the question is, upon what foundation are you building your life? Where is your focus? Where is your treasure? Because, you know, the great thing about that parable of Jesus is that he was, he was so helpful in allowing us to hear that both men faced storms. It wasn't that the man who built his house on the rock had a great life and was never challenged. No, he experienced the same kinds of storms in life that the man who built his house in the sand did. And so will you and so will me. If we want a heavyweight faith, then it needs to be a heavenly focus. A heavenly focus produces a heavyweight faith. Now, on, on the issue of worry, which Jesus seems to be directly addressing, uh, I want to go back to this commentary here and share a few observations they make about that. When it, when it comes to the issue of worry, Jesus seems to be suggesting the following. That first of all, it shows a lack of perspective. Right? Our, our perspective is, is limited, and if it shifts from God's perspective, worry can be the result of that. Secondly, it's unnecessary. Worry is never needed. It's always unnecessary. If we are to take the, 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 the theology of Jesus to heart, that would be the conclusion. It's pointless. It doesn't seem to serve an actual purpose other than to create more worry, which is what worry often does. Fourth, it shows a lack of faith. Faith in the very words we just read this morning, that God understands, he's got it, he's got you, and he understands what you need and will provide for your needs according to his will. Now, the truth is, he perhaps many times, doesn't provide it for our needs in a way that we would have preferred. 
but then go back to the previous point. Who's in charge? He is. And so do you trust in his sovereignty and his plan? Lastly, it's what unbelievers do. When Jesus says um, that the nations of the world seek after these things, uh, what he's saying is people out there, people outside of the, our, you know, my father's kingdom, they, they're after these kinds of things too. But listen, uh, you shouldn't be as concerned about it as they are because you have a trust and a faith and a caring heavenly father that they don't possess. They worry about these things because that's, that's the natural thing for them to do. But as a Christian, as a child of God, it becomes an unnatural thing to do. And so the solutions to that that he offers us is first to know that you have a heavenly father. Chances are there are some in the room right now who are battling worry. And Jesus is wonderfully giving you some steps, tangible action steps you can take. And, and, and often it points back to this first thing we have to remind ourselves, preach it to ourselves if we have to. I have a heavenly father who cares for me. I can't tell you how many times in my life, even just recently, I've had to go back to like Hebrews 13, 5 and say, I need to, I need to not allow covetousness to come into my life, but be content with what I have because he, God, my father has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I've lost count how many times I've had to preach that to myself. And that's often where we need to start. Number two, seek his kingdom. What is it about God's interest and the interest of his kingdom? What, 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 how can I be going about his ministry and service in other people's lives? What can I do out there instead of dwelling and fixating on in here? Thirdly, don't be afraid. He says, fear not. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the entire kingdom. His entire kingdom is yours. We are joint heirs with Jesus, according to the Bible. And so how can we be thinking about these things differently? I just want to be honest with you again. My wife could tell you this. When I struggle in this area, I oftentimes don't even find myself being fearful of my present circumstances. I find myself being fearful of circumstances that have not yet occurred. And they may never occur. But the sheer possibility that they might causes me to worry. But you see, my perspective is off. And I need to go back to point one. My father has this. And I need to live in trust that he has this. And you know, the truth is, everybody, and I think we all know this, this, this worry doesn't just rob us, it robs everyone else in our life. You know, if I allow this to get away from me, then it's not just me who suffers, it's my family that suffers because I'm not the husband I ought to be for my wife and I'm not the father that I ought to be to my children because I'm so preoccupied and distracted by these things that I'm worried about, some of which may never even happen. You see how this is like, this is a gracious gift that God's willing to step into these circumstances, help us figure out how to navigate them differently, so not only will we be better off, but so will be the people that we love. His count, is he not wonderful counselor? Our Jesus.
Fourth, he does encourage us to, at least to some degree, divest of temporal things. I mean, we can't escape that, but here's, here's the truth. It's not for me or any elder of this church to come into each and every one of your lives and run some kind of algorithm or test and say, here's where your lines ought to be as it relates to the amount of stuff you have. But I think the question is, when's the last time we brought before the Lord what he has provided and sought his face and his counsel as to how we should best steward those things? That we've, we've, we've resubmitted to him that these are yours and not ours. We want to use this for your agenda and not ours. That's as good a starting point as any. And that's going to look different. That's going to be demonstrated differently in each person and family's life. But we could all probably afford to divest a little bit from the stuff of this life. And then lastly, invest in eternal things. Be about his kingdom business. Not the least of which, Matthew 28 Go ye therefore into all the world and teach the gospel, baptizing them, and you know, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. To be about that. How can we use all of this to facilitate that? There's very little you can't use to facilitate that agenda. Bring people into your homes if you have them and, and share your bread with them if you have it to share so that, so that maybe they might come to a knowledge of the truth of God. Everything can be turned to, in, to be in service of that kingdom agenda. So another question to be thinking about this morning is, what is most important to you? And the reality is, you know, with that question, there really is only one answer. You understand? You can't give a threefold answer to that question. Some of you want to. Some of you already are. But there's only room for one. What is it? And the answer to that question is revealed in the relationship we have with the stuff. I want to share something else with you this morning, another video that's going to be played for you. Again, it's short. The man you're about to hear from, his name is Jonathan Evans. Jonathan Evans is the son of Tony Evans. And uh, for those of you who don't know Jonathan very well, uh, I first um, became you know, aware of him and, and his ministry uh, at a Strength to Stand Bible Conference, which is the Bible conference we take our students to every year in Tennessee. Uh, a couple years ago, I heard him for the first time. I was blown away with how well he handled God's Word. So appreciated I've been trying to follow him ever since. And he has some studies on Right Now Media, and I'm going to show you a clip of him speaking from one of those studies here in a second. To give you some context, Jonathan at one time served as the chaplain to the Dallas Cowboys. And so the story he's going to share with you comes from that time in his life, and I think it relates to the subject that we're thinking through this morning. So take a look. I think that story is helpful to just put in like real-world context what this looks like. Uh, you know, the, the, world, the world won't offer you much, so to live for it, to use Jesus' words, is foolish. Logically, it would be foolish. And so, the question I want you to grapple with at this point is, how much are you willing to give for eternity? Now, every time I hear a question like that, I'm like, I don't even know where to start, because eternity itself is hard to wrap my mind around. 
And so how, how can I answer a question like this if I can't even wrap my mind around the, the, the idea of eternity, knowing what I'd be willing to give for it? So I'm going to ask you the question differently. How much are you willing to give for a moment? And I think that question will help us better address the first one. All the things that we're working for, all the things that we care about, all the things that might produce within us a, a spirit of worry or anxiety, the question is, are any of those things worth a moment? Because that's all this world's going to give you. And that's about however long satisfaction with those things, should your challenging circumstances turn out to be better than you, than you ever hoped, beyond your wildest dreams, in, this, in the grand scheme of eternity, that's but a moment. That was but a moment of satisfaction. So what are we willing to give for just a moment? And if you're thinking to yourself, honestly, I'm not willing to give what I'm giving for just a moment, then I think you're going to start heading in the direction of doing more that is valuable for eternity. I'd like to close our time in prayer uh, and, and pray for you. And us all, as we think through these things, and I'd like to use uh, a prayer that was offered by Charles Spurgeon, probably when thinking about the text that we've studied this morning. So let's pray together. Oh, keep us, Lord. This life is full of trial. There are many that are perplexed about temporary things. Let not the enemy lead them to do or think that something is wrong because of the difficulty of supply. Others are blessed with prosperity, Lord. Let it not be a curse to them. Let them know how to abound as well as to suffer loss. In all things, may they be instructed to glorify God, not only with all they are, but with all they have, and even with all they have not and do so by a holy contentment to do without that which it does not please you to bestow. And then, Lord, give us day by day our daily bread. Provide for your poor people. Let them not think that the provision for themselves rests fully on themselves, but may they cry to you, for you have said, your bread shall be given you, your waters shall be sure. If we follow you, if you lead us into a desert, you will strew our path with manna. May your people believe this and let them have no care. But like the birds of the air, which neither sow nor gather into barns and yet are fed, so may your people be. God, thank you for impressing upon the heart of Pastor Spurgeon to pray those words and that they are so timely even today because they're based upon the timeless truths of your word. May we be this kind of people. And God, I want to just for a moment pray specifically for anyone who might be in this room and they're battling worry. And humanly speaking, for good reason. Perhaps they're facing the loss of a job or grieving the loss of a loved one 
or mourning the loss of a relationship that they prized. Or some other kind of challenges have come their way, Lord, and they are struggling. They have concerns, very real concerns. There might be someone in our midst who isn't even sure where the next meal will come from. God, I want to pray for them. And I ask first that they would know you as Father. And if they do not, that you would open their eyes and hearts to that truth this morning, that before they leave, they would enter into that relationship with you through repentance, a turning away from living life their own way, confessing Jesus as their Lord, believing in their hearts that you raised him from the dead, and seek now to live life your way. God, if they know you as Father, or come to know you as Father this morning, I pray that you would encourage them with this thought, that you love them, and it's your good pleasure to give them your kingdom, and that you know what it is that they need, and you have plans to meet those needs in your own way and in your own time. But God, I also ask that you would move them to speak about these concerns to their brothers and sisters in Christ who surround them in this room. We are, after all, family. One way to live in light of eternity, Lord, is to live the reality now that we are brothers and sisters. God, I pray that they would speak about their concerns to some who are here today. Share what's going on so that they might not bear this burden alone. And then, God, I want to pray for everyone else. That should any of us become aware of needs that a brother and sister of Christ have, that we would not hesitate to come alongside them, to bear up under that burden with them. And if we have the means to do so, share with them out of the stuff that you've given to us. God, make us into a church that is generous in love towards one another. To be the hands and feet of Jesus in the lives of those currently in our midst who are suffering hardship. Move us to steward our resources to that end for your glory. And that we would so clearly live this way that those who enter into our midst would see it, marvel at it, that their gaze would be drawn to you and your glory, and that they themselves would come to know you and wish to be part of this family. God, move in our hearts, use our lives, keep us aware of the fleeting nature of this life, give us the boldness to live it selflessly for you with your kingdom in mind. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.